This morning, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2 and verses 3 through 11. And this is going to be a continuation of where I left off in 1 John. We're going to start here. John has given us, in the beginning of this book, he's given us a lot of important information. And he's writing to help the church with a system of beliefs that we've talked about before. We've talked about Gnosticism, and we'll get into that more here in a minute. But as we study this, the important thing is to know that the same heresies and teachings and things that the authors of Scripture were writing about is the same things that we see today. There's not been a progression. A lot of people think there's been a progression of beliefs. There's not. There's a regression back to some of the same old things that they were doing here. So as we read these, this passage makes us ask a question. And the question is, do our lives show that we know Jesus? Not that we know of Jesus, or not that we know about Jesus, but personally and relationally, do we know Jesus as Lord and Savior? In fact, in my Bible, and some of yours probably, the beginning of this passage is titled, The Test of Knowing Him. So as we go through these verses, let's keep that in our mind. And he's going to cover in this section two basic tests of knowing Jesus. The first test is obedience, and the second is how we love. So what's different about our obedience and love since salvation? So we're going to read 1 John chapter 2, 3-11. through 11. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light, and hates his brother, is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness, and walks in darkness, and does not know where he's going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So, I have to admit when I was studying this, there's some convicting verses in this passage. Alright, so to the first point is obedience. Right? Verses 3 through 6. Obey his commands. Now by this we know we know him if we keep his commandments. That's verse 3. Knowing that we know him. So throughout John's epistle, we see repetition. He uses this to emphasize certain ideas. We see it throughout scripture. When things are important, they get repeated. And John, through this whole letter, writes very circularly. He comes back around to points as you're going. So as we get into this, and we're talking about knowing Jesus, the word to know is used over 40 times in this letter, so it's important. It's, it's part of what he's trying to get across. The word in Greek is ginosko. It implies a very vivid understanding, a relationship between what is known and the knower. So it's not just knowing something by glance or by seeing a reflection, right? This is a, this is a deep relational knowledge. Because honestly, most people have some idea of who God is. Now, some of those are going to be incomplete and they're going to be incorrect, but most people, even those who don't believe, right, have some idea of God. So, there's a reason he's writing about knowing God here. And that goes to what we talked about at the beginning with Gnosticism, right? Gnosticism is a belief that was starting around this time and it continued to grow through the early church. And it was something they contended with a lot. Gnosis is what the word Gnosticism is rooted in. Gnosis means knowledge. That's what that word translates to. So the whole system was predicated on this idea that there's a secret spiritual knowledge 
that could be attained, and that you could know God either through intellectual study, like philosophy, that was big in that time, through apologetics of some kind, or through emotionally driven experiences, mysticism type things. So what I feel being the path to the divine. Right, and that, that idea, that search for hidden knowledge, really has been around since the beginning. I mean, that was in the garden. That was what they were doing, right? So, and it's in the pagan practices that we see today as well. So both of these ideas, the problem is that both of them lack a moral foundation. They've, they've got no foundation because knowledge of either kind can be obtained without moral consequence, right? There's no need for repentance if your intellect or your feelings can get you to knowledge of God. So we're going to talk about these ideas a little bit before we get into the text, right? Because like most things, knowledge, whether it's intellectual or emotional, is not a bad thing if it's in its proper place and if we use it properly. But like most good things, we can twist them and use them in a sinful way. So to start with, we'll go through the idea of intellectual knowledge, right? So we know knowledge without belief. It's something that we've talked about before. It's completely possible to have knowledge and not believe. In James chapter 2, 19 and 20, James writes, you believe there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Even the demons believe. Okay, so we can know that there's a God. We can know the scriptures. We can know that Jesus existed and yet not know God the way John's talking about in these verses. As I was studying for this, I went and looked at some different articles. One article I found on the historical accounts of Jesus outside of the Bible and including the Bible. This is a quote from that. Virtually all scholars of antiquity argue that Jesus existed. The contrary perspective, the idea that Christ was a myth, is regarded as a fringe theory. Paul writes in Romans that God has revealed himself to all men so that no one has an excuse. So knowledge alone isn't going to get us there, right? A lack of knowledge isn't the problem because knowing doesn't equal a saving belief. As I was reading through this, I got to thinking about like my coworkers, and I know we all have these conversations where you just talk about things, talk about life, whatever. And one of the things that we've talked about, I'm sure, is that I'm married, right? And they know I'm married. Why do they know that? They know because I wear a wedding ring. Because I've probably told them I'm married. I've told them about my wife. I have kids. They've seen us on Facebook. All those things, right? But they haven't met her. So they, they've got all the evidence that my wife exists, but they don't know her. They don't know her the way that we do, the way that anyone in this room would, you know. So there's a difference, right, between the intellectual knowledge. It's not enough just to know. As we talk about the emotional knowledge, when it comes to our emotions, we've got to be very careful, right? Our emotions can be easy to manipulate. They can be twisted a little bit sometimes, and they can mislead us. So we can't trust our emotions in every situation. And back to being married, I know I'm not the only one who has learned that you cannot trust your emotions in every situation. I'm sure maybe I am the only one who's been angry, very angry, and then realized that I wasn't the one that should be angry in the situation. So I had an emotion that was very strong, and I followed it, and it misled me. It was not correct. So the idea of following our heart, right, we hear that a lot. And I know it's said with good intention. Follow your heart, live your truth, but that's just, we know that we can't do that. The prophet Jeremiah writes, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So we can't let our emotions dictate everything that we do. And honestly, no one actually lives like that. We, we know that's part of maturing, right? Part of maturing is learning to control your emotions. It's what you have to do with the little ones in your house because they don't. They're just, ah, all the time. And so teaching them to calm down, you know, you've got to keep that. Don't fly off the handle. So we know that that, again, emotional experiences in themselves is not going to be enough. All right, so 
the test of knowing him, as he's talking about here. So as we contrast what we just talked about, his first test is in verse 3 and 4, right? Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And then in verse 4, he repeats it. He says it the other direction, but he repeats it. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Jesus also teaches us this. In John 14, 15 through 18, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So the first test is obedience. As we go to verse 5, whoever keeps his word Truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. Obedience to Jesus' commands. The love of God is perfected in him, and it's reassurance to us of our salvation. When he says here, the love of God being perfected in him, that's our love of God, right? That's our love of God is perfected in us by his word. How does our love for God grow? It grows by knowing him and by studying and knowing his will. So the observance of his will and commandments is the test of knowing him. But the observance of commandments is not the cause of salvation, right? So we have to make sure that we get that, get that order right. Because there's many religions. There's a lot of different offshoots of Christianity that claim that what we do is what saves us. Or that we have to tip the scale somehow in our lives. The first thing that we need to know, right, is the truth of our sin and what our sin is in God's eyes, what our sin is. So, in Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, there's none righteous, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's no one who does good, no, not one. That's your pick-me-up portion of the scripture. So, there's no one that does good, right? And there's no one who seeks after God. So, something has to happen for us to seek after God. So, the first thing that has to happen is God has to work in our lives. So first, we need to be born again. If we are born into sin, and sin comes through that, we all have a sin nature, then we have to be born again, right? Jesus says this in John 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So first, we have to be born again. Second, being born again means that we're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Okay, so we're born again, and we're a new creation. And when we are born again in a new creation, God's Spirit dwells in us. That's our third point. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also... Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. So when we are saved, there are changes. Everything changes, right? Everything is going to be different. This is one place where doctrine is, is so important as we talk about this. Again, that the order of where our works come into this equation. So we're talking about the doctrine of regeneration here. So an article of Grace to You, which is John MacArthur's ministry, he explains it like this. He says, There are no steps you do to become alive, either physically or spiritually. So being born again or being regenerated is clearly an analogy that speaks of something 
that happens apart from us. Charles Spurgeon says, Being born again is not a change of my name, but a renewal of my nature, so that I am not the man I used to be, but a new man in Christ Jesus. So, we're not saved by our changed behaviors, right? We're changed by the saving work in us. Now, the difference between how we approach this, whether it's a legalistic view of our works or whether it's in response to the working of Christ in our hearts, it's night and day difference. Okay? Outwardly, the things may look the same that we're doing, but the heart behind it is very different, and it's important for us to recognize that. It's the changes made at salvation that produce the desire for the good works. It's the outpouring of God's love and grace and mercy that's taken place on us that we are then showing through our lives and through what we do. And when people get that mixed up, it can be, it can be dangerous and it can be hurtful to people who are under those teachings. Like One result of that teaching, that somehow our salvation depends on us, it puts an unnecessary burden on people to say that your works are what save you. It puts something there that has been taken. It says that the gospel is not a burden. So it adds that unnecessary burden. Or on the other side of that, if you think that what you're doing, maybe it's a burden, maybe you think, hey, I'm doing pretty good. It could lead to arrogance, right? And an, and an arrogant view of salvation, like, well, I deserve this. I've done pretty good, so go me. And then the glory is no longer going to God. The glory is coming to us if we're responsible for it. So the truth of it is every part of our salvation is a gift, right? It's given to us by grace, and we add nothing to it. So our compassion our love, our friendships, our mercy, our forgiveness. When we're believers, all of that is an act of worship. All of it's an act of praise. The glory goes to God and not to us. Now verse 6, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. That's it. Just walk as Jesus walked, right? That's all you got to do. This is probably the most convicting verse out of this section. When it says, if we abide in him, we should walk as he walks. And again, we've we got to understand what he's talking about, right? Because John's not teaching that we're going to be sinless. He, he's not teaching that at all. There are some people who claim that. Okay? There's a whole movement, the prosperity and new apostolic movements, they both make that claim that when we're saved, we can be sinless. But that is not true. And we know that's not true because John would have to contradict what he wrote in chapter 1. If you look back at chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, he writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. If we say that we have no sin, we are a liar. However, this doesn't mean that we have an excuse to continue on doing the things that we desire that are against the commands of God. Because Christ is our example. When it says, he who abides in him ought himself to walk as he walked. Jesus is to be our example. He is who we are to try to imitate in our life. In Matthew Henry's commentary, he said, The Lord Christ was an inhabitant of this world and walked here below. Here he gave a shining example of absolute obedience to God. Those who profess to be on his side and to abide with him must walk with him and walk after his pattern and his example. So Jesus humbled himself and was obedient even to death for the Father's glory. Right, so if we have a relationship with Jesus and we know him, then we will be obedient. There's going to be obedience for the glory of God. So just to bring that all together from there back to, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Because 
when we understand that the first thing that happens in the life of the believer is that God regenerates us and changes us. And in that change, we then desire to keep his commandments. Okay, When we keep his commandments and we're striving to live as he lived and love as he loved, that's assurance that the regeneration has happened. Okay, So we, we can't have one without the other. So what we're seeing is that if you keep his commandments, if we keep his commandments, it's... It's a test of knowing him because if we know him, we will keep his commandments because if we're keeping his commandments, we know him. It's that circular thing we were talking about, right? So that's how this all ties together in the knowing him. And then as we go forward, we're going to go forward into verse 7 through 11. He's going to talk about what the commandment is, right? So verse 7 through 11, brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I love these first two verses, 7 and 8, because I write no new commandment in verse 7, and then in verse 8, a new commandment I write to you. So this was fun, right, to go through. It's interesting, it's wordplay that he's using here when he says that. So the commandment, as we go forward, the commandment is to love, right? But what's happening here with these that appear to be opposites? So the old commandment that he says in verse 7 You had it from the beginning. He says, you've had it from the beginning. The word which you heard from the beginning. The command to love was not a new command, right? The Jews had been taught this from the start. This command wasn't replacing what they already knew. It wasn't replacing what they already knew. It was clarifying. Jesus, when he asked what the greatest commandment was in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus tells them that all the law hangs on these two things, to love God and to love your neighbor. All of the law. So love is at the heart of the law and prophets. And the law and prophets is the the Old Testament scriptures. That's what they had, right? That's what they would have been studying at that time and teaching from. So this is an old commandment. It's a commandment they've had from the beginning, but it's a new commandment. Makes sense, right? But if we look at what it says, if we look at verse 8 again, when he says this is a new commandment, he says, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The commandment of love was new because Jesus personified love in a new way, and it was shed abroad in believers' hearts and energized by the Holy Spirit. He raised love to a higher standard for the church and then commanded his disciples to imitate his love. So this old commandment was made new in Jesus. Love was perfected in Jesus. 1 John 4, towards the end of this book, 17 through 19, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears 
has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he loved us first. So, again, the renewal of this command, because in the past, we weren't getting it right. We still don't get it right. But, but Jesus came, and he was our example of what this meant, right? Even as he talked through the law, he said he didn't, he's not changing the commandments. He expanded on the commandments. He's like, you're not getting the heart of it. You're not understanding this. So that's where this commandment becomes new, right? Because darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. That's the change, right? That's the change in us when we're in Him. It's a whole life change. It's more than just a confession. It's more than just knowledge. It's throughout everything that we say and do because we've been given a new heart and the Spirit of God lives within us. Now, when we talk about love, when we talk about being loving, we need to recognize what godly love is, right? Because love is a word that is used so much for so many things in our world, and it's misused and beat up so The world often uses love synonymously with approval or acceptance. That's a big one right now. If you're not accepting of someone or something, you're not being loving, right? Love accepts everything, even if those things go against the Word of God. You're supposed to be loving, right? They may say, you're supposed to love. You're a Christian. You're supposed to love. How can you act so unloving towards someone by saying something's wrong? That's the world's view of love. Right? That's the problem we have with such a loosely defined word that gets thrown around as often as it does. Love in the world can be temporary, right? Because a lot of times, love depends on a feeling. It's completely based on a feeling. And we talked about feelings and my feelings and how untrustworthy my feelings can be at times. But the world says, if I don't feel loved, I'm not going to act loving, right? God's love is so much different than the world's love. It's so much better than the world's love. These next verses are probably familiar to everyone in here out of 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes always perseveres. So we are not commanded to love the way that the world loves. We're commanded to agape love. We've talked about that before, right? The the Greek word for love there, because they had so many more words for that. It's the love the way God loves. This love doesn't compromise, but it teaches truth with compassion, right? Compassion, but never acceptance of sin. This love isn't fleeting. It's not a feeling that changes or leaves. It's enduring. It's patient. This love is not for personal benefit. It's not about what I get out of this. It's sacrificial. This love doesn't hold grudges because it's forgiving. This love doesn't have to be earned. It's given. It's something given freely. It does not depend on the one receiving it. That's important, right? It does not depend on the person receiving it. And why is that important? Because that's the love that we've been shown. And that's the love that we are to reflect. But that's the love that God has shown to us. Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God that his love does not depend on the people receiving it. All right, so in verses 9 and 11. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness 
has blinded his eyes. He who hates his brother walks in darkness, and he who loves walks in the light. The word used for hate here, the Greek word, is very specific. It's not just a dislike. This, this is talking about a characteristic, a defining characteristic of someone's life. So it's not just a solitary experience. The false teachers that were claiming enlightenment at this time, and the ones we talked about that are doing the same thing now, they're claiming sinlessness and things, their lives don't show the fruit. Their spiritual knowledge that they had at this time wasn't showing any fruit. So we cannot be in the true light that drives out the darkness and be defined by hate. That light, that love that's been shown to us, to sinners who by our nature are opposed to the things of God, should shine out of us. It should guide us. It should keep us from stumbling. Right? But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So it keeps us from stumbling. If we don't act in this way, our lives are blinded by darkness. John eight twelve. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus is the light that casts out the darkness and that guides us. So do our lives show that we know Jesus? Because in knowing him, we are given his spirit to, to desire and to, and to keep his commands. So keeping his commands shows that we know him. So do our lives show that we know Jesus? Do we keep his commands or do we profess something and live differently? Do we love like the world? right, superficially, or when it's beneficial to us, or when we feel like it because we're just in a good mood that day? Or is our love a salt and light to the world pointing to the true light? 